Hello, today I am speaking with my dear friend, Suta Kavari. Suta is a politically savvy director of research at Laurel Strategies, where he provides advice to CEOs and other world leaders. Today, we're talking about friendships across political lines, about how to have good conversations, and we discuss contemporary issues in British and Namibian politics. Conversations with Suta are always great fun and memorable, and this one was no exception. So now I bring you Suta Kavari. Welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you so much for joining me. Would you please uh, start us off by doing a quick intro of who you are and what you do? Well, thank you so much, James, for having me. I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. I personally don't know why I'm here. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> no, um, we're obviously um, on here because we've had many conversations before in Oxford about, you know, just general how you have conversations with people from different political spectrums from different ideologies. And I used to host a podcast at the University of Oxford called Oxford Policy Pod, which explored conversations around policymaking and, you know, who gets to decide and who shapes ideas that then get implemented as policies. And I'm currently heading up research for a consultancy based in DC that looks at, that helps some of the world's top CEOs express leadership. And yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, actually, that's a good place to start. The Oxford Policy Pod. You had a, a number of very interesting conversations there. It's still going, so I encourage people to check it out. What uh, are some of the things that you learned from those conversations that you then took to your current position? I think the most important thing that I learned from that whole experience is listening. But you know, but like, but that really deep listening of suspending, suspending disbelief, and suspending any sort of like pre-health consumption uh, assumptions that you have about someone, and then just listening to their words, and then just responding to what they're saying, rather than you know coming into a conversation, coming into a narrative with your own bias, with your own sort of like ideological leaning, and trying to weave that into conversation, trying to like force your ideas onto someone else's or force this idea into a conversation. And that creates a lot of friction in conversation. So I think that is one of the things that I learned. And then, I mean, the other thing that I learned was also people are incredibly interesting if they're allowed the space to grapple with the ideas. And I think because we live in a world where we have easy access to information, we have easy access to literally everything. And I feel like most conversations that we have is just a box ticking exercise about what facts can you convey rather than sort of like, what can you mm. derive from the data? Weave it into your own either story because or your own personal narrative and actually come up to a conclusion that is grounded in experience, it's grounded in you know in facts. And I think what I got out of that exercise was just like being deeply curious about what someone has to say and really exploring that rather than being held back by your own by your own bias and really wanting to wanting to insert that into a narrative. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. And I think there was a huge range of opinions on our course and political positions. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm curious. Sometimes those resulted in friendships, as like our, ours did, um, but sometimes less so. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on how how that works. I mean, how come? we are able to become friends, even though we sometimes had quite different opinions on, or often had very different opinions on different political matters, but we were still able to overcome that. And I'm curious why you think that was able to happen. 
um, you know, in our case, but yeah. not in other cases. I think I think you know I've I've been reflecting on this question, or I've been I've been reflecting on you know our friendship and how we were able to have really meaningful conversations, and we come from very different political leanings. And just before I came onto this podcast, I was listening to an interview that Barack Obama and Ezra Klein from the New York Times had about, you know, how polarized the world is right now, and especially America, and how how to cut across that. And one of the things that really stuck with me that he said was that, you know, the best way to win an argument is to be to first be able to make the other person's argument better than they can make it. So, and that really, I mean, to me, that what that meant was really trying to understand their worldview, where they're coming from, what has shaped that, and why they think and say the things that they do. And I think once you have an idea of that, or once you have an understanding of why someone says the things that they say, because it's grounded in in something, either grounded in an experience, or it's not grounded. And I think not being dismissive about someone's views and letting someone really fully explore the contours and the contradictions of their argument is important way of really allowing the person to also grapple with their own thoughts. Because I think when a lot of the times when you enter into conversations and when you enter into debates, the first thing that we want to do is we want to win the argument. We want to prove the other person wrong. But I feel like sort of stopping for a second and actually allowing the person to fully explore his thoughts and how he's formed, and then allowing the person to go away with whatever ideas or whatever you know what sort of like whatever opinions and actually sit with them and grapple with them and then come back because i think there's there's a thing around instant gratification where it feels good to win an argument it feels good yeah, yeah. to be factually accurate and to call people out um and it's less and it's less sexy to actually sit down and listen to someone and i think the long and short of your question, Jamie, is that I think we were able to do that because, A, there was there was mutual respect. And there was also an understanding that there was no malicious intent. I didn't need to prove you wrong. You didn't need to prove me wrong. And, and my sense of myself wasn't based on the fact that I could step away from the conversation knowing that I've won it. I am quite comfortable in knowing that I don't know many things and I get a number of things quite wrong, but I'm able to take that as a lesson and learn from it. And also, and, then, and that's how you grow. And I think that's what worked well for us is that sort of humility of knowing that we're not always right. And we might be right, but like we might be right, but in never having had considered another perspective or another narrative. And I think there was that sort of like, that, that sense of, I know I'm going to learn something from this person and I don't need to teach him anything. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I also, I wrote down two words for that kind of summed it up for me, which was trust and intellectual curiosity. And I think you kind of captured that there when you said kind of the, the trust is that, you know, we, we assign the best of intentions to what you're saying. You know, you're, you're, you're saying it from a, or you're, you're arguing from a point of kind of, of mutual friendship and respect, uh, not from kind of trying to find the worst angle of what the person is saying, which I think can definitely undermine that uh, any friendship if you're, if you're constantly looking for the worst possible way exactly. of interpreting. And then, the I mean, then saying. it also comes into why do we, how do we enter into a narrative? Do we enter into this narrative? And now, what is our intention? And what is our intentionality when 
when having conversations and we're talking to different people, is it about imposing ourselves or is it really just sus- sort of suspending judgment and, and then exercising to do deep listening? What does the person have to say? And, and really just taking it from there. And that means also just letting go of our biases and just being immersed in the moment, you know, and really listening to, deeply listening to what the person is saying. And then based off of that, respond. Yes. That makes sense. And and I think the last thing is probably uh, the occasional glass of wine probably helps. Oh, no, that always helps. (laughs) (laughs) That always helps. (laughs) You said to me in a conversation recently about, uh, you know, also, is this this the hill I want to die on? And and you, you said... No, basically, is the, is the answer. And I think that's what the question that we should ask ourselves more often. Is this really the hill that I want to die on? <laughs> no, I have so much yeah. more life to have. Yeah, exactly. I, I think, you know, I think it's curious. I'm curious about your perspective of, like, this moment of division across political lines, which seems to be, appears to be getting worse. I wonder if that is, do you consider that to be merely a perception of the kind of the importance of us thinking this moment is, is completely new? Do you think these divisions have always been there or do you think it's getting worse? Uh, leave it at that. I think the divisions are getting exacerbated by, by the echo chambers that we design for ourselves. I mean, now you have ready like you have information in your fingertips and you're able to create a community based on the views that you have you're able to create this self-sustaining ecosystem and this virtuous cycle of having people who have the exact same view as you do who respond in the same manner as you and so you never really you never challenge yourself you never grow because you're constantly feeding yourself the same narrative you're constantly feeding yourself the same information and then once you step away from that and then what and then you step into a world where someone has a different opinion then that becomes a challenge on your conception of yourself rather than an opportunity to grow or an opportunity to have intellectual exploration because i think because we create this self-sustaining ecosystems and we create these communities which are safe spaces for a lot of people is that our our conception of ourselves then gets tied to that. And then I become Suta, who is this leftist who talks about X. And that becomes the idea of myself. And then I speak in those circles, and those people know me as Suta, the leftist who speaks about X. And so stepping away from that, that means stepping away from your comfort zone and being in a vulnerable, vulnerable space. And so if anyone asks a probing question that I'm unable to defend, because the only input or information that I have is all information that confirms the biases that I, the, the, either the biases that I have or the, or sort of like the positions that I, I have. And so, and that becomes an attack on your, on, and then you don't see that as an attack on the, on the argument, greater argument, societal, whatever it is, then you see it as personal. And I think because we've, we have personalized debates and then it's about me, 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 rather than what is the person trying to say? And what am I trying to say? And I think sort of like taking a step away from it and not personal. I mean, and I say this and it's not, it's not easy because I mean, politics is personal after all, but I'm saying just really the ability to just step away from yourself and actually have listen. And I think social media and the proliferation of information at our fingertips, what that meant is 
that we're more informed, but we're less able to to sort of to engage in debate because we're not interested in what the other person has to say. I'm more interested in having conversations that are enriching with people in my ecosystem because you step away feeling great and knowing things. And I think, yeah, I think I think this moment is really interesting. And I think it we need to approach it with real honesty and humility about, and again, arcing back to what I said about how do we enter a narrative and what is our intention when we, when we engage with people. And I think really it's about education and learning. And if that's, if that's your intention, then I think that can be a way of tackling the polarization. I mean, the polarization that we face at the moment. I don't, yeah. I don't have the answers, but that's one, <laughs> no, of, one of way of thinking yeah. about it. Yeah, uh, yeah, because I, I, I wonder about, for example, the um, impact of, of technology on, on all this, because we've only had, what, maybe 10 years or less of social media, where, as you say, we're all having completely tailorized Ta- tailorized? Is that a word? That's not a tailorized. Word. Tailored. <laughs> well, tailorized. Arguments experience. are already formed. They're ready, and then and yeah. and then you can just like you step into them. Yeah, they, like they're already formed. But it's also that what you see and what I see are completely different in terms of news, in terms of what we see in our feeds on YouTube, and 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 so there's this kind of loss of a shared understanding of the world that maybe was existed 20 years ago or 25 years ago when you know there were only four or five tv channels there were four or five newspapers now i mean there's very little even in terms of shared culture for example that everyone watches different netflix shows whereas maybe in in 1990 everybody watched friends for example and so everybody had that same cultural reference now maybe I don't know, I watch Downton Abbey and you watch something entirely different. And we, we have, you know, there's, we become further and fractured in, in society as people further splinter into their very niche interests. But then that's, that's interesting because, you know, here's someone who's, because that provides an opportunity to learn something else, you know, to sort of like step away from what you know and get insights into something that you've never considered before could potentially be interesting to you somewhere along the line, but you, which you have never really thought about because it's not in your immediate radar. And I think it's also the way we curate. And like you said, and how, how your feed is curated to really, because I mean, everyone's, everyone's news feed is very unique to them. It's very unique to their likes and it's very unique to their internet traffic. And so you, no one person has the same online experience. And it, I think what that creates is, it creates, it starts sort of like pulling people apart. And then, so we could read the same, not the same article, but sort of the same story, but come from it from two very different angles. To me, something that would be intellectually enriching is exploring those two perspectives and seeing how you can see one thing and arrive at two, three, five, seven different conclusions. And that's deeply interesting for someone who's deeply curious about the world and how the world um, thinks and what shapes people's thoughts. But I think now it's sort of just easy to go through your feed and then have people who have sort of like very similar feeds and have conversations about that because then you're never really challenged. And I think really true education is being uncomfortable. And I think we're not at a point yet where we 
want to be uncomfortable with our ideas because we live in a world that's also that can quickly call people out. And I think, and which is a shame because, you know, I, like I said earlier, I don't have all of the answers. I, there's a lot of things that I don't know. And I don't want to be afraid of saying something because someone might call me out and because I think what then happens is like you're never really able to express an opinion. And I mean, I, and I'm not saying express an opinion for the sake of expressing opinion, even if that opinion is malicious. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just saying sort of like expressing an opinion and then you have a conversation with someone who then points out the lacuna in, in, in your arguments or in sort of your thought formation, how you arrived at that. Someone who can tell you, well, you failed to consider X, or you fail to consider the impact this people had this this theme has on people from this community, and I think, and then that starts to build your understanding of how interconnected and I mean the world is complex, but it's also interconnected and in how different people experience the same event, experience the same sort of theme differently, and I think I mean that's that's where intersectionality comes into place, but then allowing ourselves to form those those connections is important. But because we are afraid of expressing opinion that might not seem kosher or that might be easily called out, we're less inclined to offer ourselves and be vulnerable in those spaces. And I think that has a part to do in, in how polarized the world is, that it's easier to call someone out rather than engage with that person. And then also, sometimes... People are not, don't, don't enter conversations with the best of intentions. And so while you want, might want to be vulnerable in that moment saying, listen, there's a, I, this is what I think about this, this topic. I'm not saying that I know everything, but this is what I know based of what I've read based on my own sort of experience with it. And then someone else can come, well, actually, no, have you considered that historically this has been the perspective of this group of people who have experienced this in this different kind of way. And then, the, and that's where true education and true learning happens. But because arriving at that moment, sort of like arriving at that position where you are able to say, I don't know, is deeply uncomfortable and you're afraid that you're going to be called out. And I think people are less willing to, to enter into those spaces, which I think is a shame. Yeah. And one other thing I think is is curious about our, about the time we have at the moment or the time we live in at the moment is how it, it sort of positions get bundled under your under your political um, ideology. So, for example, if you imagine somebody says they're, for example, a Republican in the US and you can then immediately know that their position on a whole host of issues from abortion to climate change to other things. And it, it's curious that that should be the case because, you know, your, your position on abortion could be unrelated to your position on climate change, but, but yet you kind of end up with this basket of, of similar things that, to me, express a lack of kind of intellectual rigour if you just accept all Absolutely. these things that and go it's along intellectually with it. lazy. Because if I'm going to be a Republican or right-wing, I know absolutely nothing about you. I know how you might vote, for example, when a general election comes up. That's all I know about you. I don't know what your views are on climate change. I don't know what your views are on 
social issues. I don't know what your views are. My point is that almost you do at the moment. Is that but, many but, people? But the thing is, but you don't, right? <laughs> but because there's, but there's, because there's all this all-encompassing yeah. umbrella that we've that we've ascribed. Just because you say you're Republican, you're Democrat, um, mm. that's American, or in this country you Labour or you Tory or you Green or you SPD or CDU in Germany, that just tells you who you're going to vote for or who the personalities are involved in our politics. And yeah. and I feel that's all you know, and you don't really know much. But because we've, we've, we're, now in a, we're now in a space, culturally and intellectually, where that tells you everything that you need to know about someone. And, because, and then there's no curiosity. There's no engagement with that person. And what I'm saying is that that is intellectually lazy. I know nothing about you. I know who you might vote for, and that can be a conversation starter. But you might you might vote for a right-wing party and also be pro the climate agenda, which doesn't align, which might not align with the politics of the party. And then also, like, ideologies are not a fixation. It's not a fixed star. You know, there's a fluidity to how ideas form and are shaped. I mean, the, this the, the the government in this country at the moment is driving the climate agenda, which is, in all intents and purposes, a right-wing government. The same right-wing government in Australia is doing absolutely nothing on climate change. In fact, they are pro-coal. So, so do you see that dichotomy? So by yeah. just saying that someone is, 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 is right-wing politically, doesn't give me a, a clean a clean slate to know what all the views are, and I think moving away from just that the the labels that we uh, attach to people, which is an easy way of never engaging with someone, because then you can just say that well you're right wing, so you can't talk to me because your views on gender, your views on climate, your views on all the this myriad of things are X. And that's like a really easy way of excusing yourself from having conversations with someone. And I think move away, move past that label and actually get to hear what the person's ideas are. And sometimes you find that people just say the things that they hear on a party broadcast. And once, yeah. once you probe deeper, it's, it's, quite, it's, quite, it's quite empty rhetoric. And sometimes yeah. because that's all they hear and that's all they're surrounded by, and, and 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 that's the input that they're getting. But once you people have a conversation with someone, they realize, oh, actually, this is not as a fixed star as I thought it was. We've clearly been in a very divisive period in both in the US and the UK. If we're, if we're talking about these countries, I'm curious. Do you think we have moved past that now with the end of the Trump presidency and the and the and the sort of semi resolution of the Brexit uh, matter or are we going to see further sort of strong division in these in these two countries in particular? I mean, of you. James, let me just say, I mean, there's around, what, 37, 40% of Americans who feel like the election was stolen. It's quite alarming. And that is alarming. <laughs> and And I think that the Trump years exacerbated a lot of what certain right-wing commentary likes to refer to as a culture, which I think is just completely, again, intellectually lazy. But it has, but it feeds on social division. It feeds on victimizing a group 
and 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 creating this false sense of threat. And I think and it and it and it does that and it weaponizes that and then people constantly feel like they're under attack, that they're under threat. It's it's saying and and I, and that that happens and that that happens mostly because groups that have always been in the minority groups that have always been under threat are now recreating it's the space for intellectual debate in the in the political space or the political spectrum is becoming a lot more encompassing of different opinions and different views and different thoughts and people who have been and we can see this in any any society in any culture people groups that have been in the majority who have been dominant feel threatened because you have to now not really no one's saying vac- vacate your the power that you've had people are getting voices and are calling out things when things need to be called out racism sexism misogyny and all these things and those are starting to be called out and again because people and and those are people who haven't really had a voice before not getting their voice and i think politicians and especially the, that genre of politician that trump really brought out see that people fear change and that it is change it is it is discomforting to a lot of people who've never had interactions outside of outside of the the communities and so but instead of facilitating a way of really engaging with differing views and differing opinions what they do is they like i said create false victims and and turn people against each other and and i think that has been exacerbated during the trump years I feel like we still I mean I think like we still at an inflection point and I don't know when that sort of the when those divisions are going to be healed because there is no we, we, there is no unifying figure. I mean when I think back to my parents were what around my age when Namibia and South Africa you know became independent and apartheid ended and that was culturally socially politically psychologically the worst experience for black people and there was so- we should we should note that you're from namibia we, we should know that i'm from <laughs> namibia you know and and yeah. and and you had a unifying figure in nelson mandela who was able to unite a very fractured nation a very fractured people on so many on so many fronts it was political yes it was racial yes it was social it was gendered it was all those things and you you had someone who was able to cut across that and really find i guess and this sounds cliched and i'm sorry the humanity in everyone and sort of like how interconnected everyone's experience is in this country and how we better of being tolerant how we better of being you know creating space that is that is equal and equitable and i feel like we we don't have that in the, in the at the moment because it's it's about you know it's about political expediency it's about the next election it's about winning the most seats and and 
and this and 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 this is what the culture wars are all about it's it's not really trying to create any discourse that's about inclusion it's it's mostly about carving out your tribe so that you can win enough votes at the next elections I mean, short of short of a Mandela-like figure appearing in in one of these quite divided societies, are there, is there anything you can think of that would help start to move past these divisions that we've seen? Any policy advice you would give <laughs> if you were advising Joe Biden or or <laughs> Boris Johnson? Yeah, I think. I mean, it's. I mean, the solutions are both easy and complex. I think, just really being very honest about where we are as a society. And it's, and it's not a great place for many people. And, and I think it's due to, in a sense, public policy failures. You know, the, what the one thing that the pandemic did really expose is like those deep divisions that cut through society. You know, when you look at the stats where Black and Asian communities had more infections and suffered disproportionately against COVID. What, what, what was it a public policy failure or was it a deliberate design? How can you change that? And I think the first, I think what we need to do is just our language needs to change. How we refer to each other and how we refer to different groups of people that we don't agree with needs to change. We need to be. We need, we need to listen, you know, we need to be more curious. I am interested in having a conversation with, with someone who stormed the U.S. Capitol. I'm interested in the thought process that led them to that. I'm interested in what informed them. I'm not saying like, oh, Trump said we should do this, like, but what informed your decision to storm the Capitol and like truly understand the mind and the psyche of what, of what really goes into people making decisions like that, and not and not for not to ridicule them, but really to, yeah. to understand. And I think, and and that's where our politics, and that's I think why people act the way they do and they respond the way they do is because they feel that politics has been professionalized, and you know, politicians don't listen to or respond to their fears and their anger. And so you, and then you have a demagogue who comes in, who looks nothing like them, who's a billionaire from New York, but who's able to capture the essence of what they're saying. And it might be racist. It might be sexist. It might just be, you know, steeped in really the worst type of rhetoric, but, the thing is, why I'm interested in understanding why someone would vote for someone like that. And that's because they felt left behind. And so how can we create a polity and a body politic that's, that can be more inclusive? I think we've always had divisions, but I think the divisions that we have now run much more, run deeper and closer to the bone and it's personalized. And I think detoxifying that and I think social media also plays a role in the proliferation of, you know, misinformation and disinformation and deep fakes. 
that also plays in a part and in sort of like those fractures, those deep fractures that we're seeing. And so from, I think you asked from a policy perspective, I think from a policy, policy perspective is really, I guess, starting with a, the language that we used to describe and talk about different people, but then also, you know, content moderation on these social media platforms to make sure that information that is shared is as close to being true and factual as possible. And that's just one step in like a hundred gazillion thousand. But I think that's an important step because that's where we get most of our news and information from. And that's how we interact with different people. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very long and short. (laughs) Difficult problem to solve that, especially content moderation. Very, very challenging who determines the what is true and what is not. But uh, beyond the fairly obvious uh, stuff, it gets a bit, there's a very large gray area, I think, in the middle. It's a, yeah, it's a very large gray area, but like just making sure that the information that spreads around these net, uh, this platform, true to some degree, but then also don't cause a, a ethnic riot in certain countries like we saw in, in Myanmar and Ethiopia. Absolutely. Um, Changing gear completely. I believe you moved to the UK a couple of years ago, and that was when you actually moved uh, full-time to live here. I'm curious what surprised you as somebody very interested in politics. What surprised you about our politics that you maybe had not realised from afar? I mean, first of all, I didn't know that I could vote. And so that was a big surprise to me because then I can... No, (laughs) no. I think what surprised me about the politics is... A, the position that Labour finds itself in at the moment and actually how deep and structural that is. And Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party, I find interesting for a number of reasons because when you look at the last budget that was tabled, you could close your eyes and imagine there was a Labour Chancellor announcing those fiscal rules that they did. And when you look at the climate pledges that weirdly enough, was started by Theresa May. Again, you could think, oh, this is maybe Ed or David Millenbad at the, as energy secretary is coming there. So I think the shift, sort of like the ideological shift that's happening currently is fascinating to me and it's interesting to me. And I think, and the focus on, you know, the red wall, st- like the red wall seats, in, in Northern England, which were former Labour bastions and are, you know, being peeled away from Labour. And just sort of like that whole debate around North-South, the Scotland question of independence. And I feel like those, I, as someone from the outside, you know, reading and listening in on all the debates, it's very fascinating. Like some things like that are very fascinating when you're at a distance. And then when you're actually immersed in them, they become, you know, very interesting and personal. You know, I am married to someone who's Welsh and we went to his parents' house for recently for for his dad's birthday. And one thing that I never really considered was the the Welsh question. You know, the... I know the debate around Welsh independence is not as salient as the Scottish debate, but there's also, like 
an a very strong Welsh identity that is a independent from the broader British identity, but then also steeped in the British identity. So I think there's a lot of contradiction in the politics, which I find fascinating. How's your Welsh coming along? Oh, non-existent. <laughs> <laughs> non-existent. I mean, no, uh, non-existent. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, if, if there's anything that you could, if there was one thing you could change uh, about the sort of structure of our political system, what would that be? Probably uh, electoral reform. No, I think the structure... Go on. Well, from first past the post to proportional representation. No, I mean, I would... We, we can certainly uh, debate that one, as I, I would I would not be personally in favour of that. I know. <laughs> and oh, wouldn't... Over wine, wouldn't that be a great conversation to have? No, I think... You know, I think there's some... What is very... What I found, what I found really fascinating the last local elections was how the Green Party fared. And, and I say that because one of our housemates is now a local uh, councillor, a Green, Green Party councillor in the Bristol City Council. And I just, and what I found, and I say I found fascinating is sort of the, the shift that's happening in voting intention and how, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds, you know, the, the, new, the new generation of voters who are coming in, who perhaps don't have the same you know, um, political, how, how should I phrase it? You know, who don't see politics as a, as a sort of like a competition between Labour and the Conservatives, who are more, less worried about political parties and actually more issues focused. You know, the environment and climate are top of the agenda and willing to vote for parties that speak to their needs and speak to the issues that they find important. And that's what I find incredibly fascinating because I think you and I, as politically savvy as we are, will vote for the same, sort of like the same parties that we vote for because there's, you know, there's a tribal element to it. We know the personalities involved and we can also debate about it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really, it's, it's really fascinating to look and to listen to, to how it's more, it's, it's issues that are driving politics at the moment. You know, what are you going to do about climate change? You know, what are you going to do about free meals? And the fact that someone like Marcus Rashford was able single-handedly to drive a policy messaging, policy narrative that eventually led to a policy U-turn, that is incredibly fascinating. And I think more of that is good. And I think if if there's a change that I want to see or hope to see or that would, would be of great benefit for society is really having sort of like more issues-focused debate rather than identity sort of focused debate on, oh, what's Boris Johnson going to do now? What's Keir Starmer going to do now? No, what is government going to do about an issue that affects a great mass of the people? Completely agree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what do you think? I agree. <laughs> Honestly, I do. Yeah. Um, Suta, we're, we're coming up on, on, our, on, our, on our deadline uh, or, we, or our time limit here. 
but I couldn't I couldn't uh, leave this conversation without getting your your take on one of the more salient issues in in Namibia of the day, which is the the recent uh, offer rejected offer I think by by Germany in compensation for a genocide, which I believe took place about a hundred years ago. So perhaps for those less familiar with Namibian history, you could give a very short refresher of what happened, what Germany has offered and your take on the, on the whole situation. So in between 1904 and 1908, um, the German government carried out an extinction order that wiped out around 80% of the Nama population in Namibia and around, my math is right, around 60% of the Ovaherero populations. And and then over the... being the two dominant tribes in Namibia. Those, those two were the two dominant tribes in Namibia at the time. And... 100 and what, 100, coming up to 110, 120 years later, the German government finally recognized that they committed a genocide. To be absolutely honest with you, I am very ambivalent about the whole thing. On the one hand, the recognition is important in and of itself. You know, there's been strong campaigners that have campaigned for the as, as for as long as I can remember, campaigned around re- reparations and acknowledging that the genocide was committed by the Germans. And this is this has been a long campaign that the German government has ignored for the longest time. And so, the fact that there's this recognition also means that you know the hard work, the toil that went into these campaigners there's that tangible outcome, which is good. And and it's important to acknowledge that, that a wrong was done. But then on the other hand, and I guess perhaps maybe this is the cynic in me coming out, is that, you know, I think, was it four or five years ago, the German parliament voted to recognize the Armenian genocide that was committed by Turkey. And this was obviously some would say a political tit for tat. So when the 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 recognition or the acknowledgement of the genocide happened of the Vahedero and Nama genocide happened, it was not a debate in Parliament. It wasn't a speech that was given by Angela Merkel or the president, but it was a press conference by the foreign minister saying that, you know, we acknowledge that this thing has happened. And it's bad. But then what's happening in Germany in two or three, four months' time is an election. And so there wasn't a debate in Parliament. There wasn't a speech that will leave like that will live for posterity, you know, that you can look in the handset and say, on this date, the German parliament acknowledged the genocide. So A, I think it's not enough. Cause because you don't have that, you know. Haiku Maas, the foreign minister, could be out of a job in three months' time. And who's to say that the next government that, come in, that comes in there would maintain the same position as him? So that's that's the one thing. And, and the other thing is it's not reparations being offered, it's development aid. And Jamie, you and I have worked in the development space to know that all the conditionalities that are attached to development aid. And so 
is the aid going to reach the generations of victims? Or who, again, and the questions like who gets to decide when you're acknowledging the, the genocide, are you acknowledging to, you know, who was affected or is a way of identifying, you know, people who lost family. And I think the sort of, and that's, I guess that's an issue with, you know, historical, historical wrongs, because I mean, and especially this one, it was committed over, like I said, 120 years ago. So do you have to go back a hundred years to identify who the victims were, who their families were and who their relations were, and then offer the aid to them? And so, and I think, and the question of reparations is one that's not really addressed. And I think, and then also how the negotiations happened was it, it was two states negotiating and the voices of the campaigners and the voices of the victims were not elevated. And so it's also, and then it's also two unequal states negotiating, one who's on the receiving end of development aid and one who gets to dictate the terms. So, like I said, I'm very ambivalent to that. And I, I, it's important that the, that the German government acknowledge that the genocide happened. And I think that is a tangible outcome for people who have spent massive part of their lives campaigning for it. And, and because it's, it's, it's an issue that's been omnipresent, it's been omnipresent in my life, you know, in my family for the longest time. So just sort of having that as a way of like, I'm not mad, something did happen and you did apologize, to put it blibly. But then I think more needs to be done. And more, and by saying more needs to be done, it's like more needs to be done to actually, if you really are sorry, then there has to be a grand, a sort of like a grand acknowledgement that's just, that's not about an election campaign. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. Sure. And it's hard to know what to, to say as someone who's only learned about this uh, from the press release, but. But uh, if the campaign continues, hopefully it will, and hopefully there will further successes. Yeah, and I think, I mean, what I mean, and I I preface this by saying I'm very ambivalent, and one of the things I'm really happy and glad that this apology has ignited this debate, but then it has also brought it to a wider audience, because before it was mostly a debate that was had in Namibia, it was not. It's not in many history books, and so this history is being told. And by by the history being told, more people are becoming aware of it. And if that's the biggest takeaway, I'll be happy because more people will know. And you know, it's it's important that yeah. you know these things. Absolutely. Well, Suta, it's been wonderful as always to speak with you. I always thoroughly enjoy our conversations and thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. <laughs> and I very much look forward to the next one. Hopefully it will be in person oh, uh, wouldn't with, that be with, nice? with a glass of wine and uh, really appreciate you taking the time again. It was, it was great fun. No, so, Jamie, thank you so much for having me. And I'm really excited about this project that you are embarking on. I think it's imp- really important to, to have spaces and platforms to have these conversations and, just yeah, just so that you can learn something new about Absolutely. someone or a a topic or theme, and then or just really just to expand the mind. So I'm really happy that you have this platform, and I'm really glad that you had me you had me on it. So thank you so much for that. 
And hopefully Thanks, we get Jesus. to see each other soon in person. Very soon. Awesome. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did and you'd like to support the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Otherwise, have a wonderful day wherever you are, and I'll see you next time.